It's Mike Traverso with the Friends That Code podcast, where I get a chance to showcase some amazing people I know who just happen to write code for a living. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking to this amazing guest. I first met today's guest at DevFest Florida a few years back. Uh, I knew of her and I followed her on Twitter for a time prior to that because we were both uh, Google Developer Group organizers. I organized the Tampa group and she organized the New York City group and founded and organized the Hudson Valley group in New York um, at the same time. So um, that was awesome. Didn't know that until just a few um, days ago uh, that she was doing both at the same time. Uh, wasn't aware that there was even an option that you could run two groups at the same time. Uh, if I had to use a term to describe today's guest, it would be humbly in overdrive. Uh, if I remember correctly, she had this one tweet that I won't forget. Um, it was a few years ago. She's probably thinking I'm crazy just for remembering it, but it, it was, I, I was blown away when I saw it. And her family was on a road trip and her husband was driving uh, the family car so that she was able to, you know, keep track of the training pro uh, progress of her TensorFlow neural network training. Uh, it, it was pretty incredible. So saying she's a developer with over 20 years of experience seems like an understatement, but she has a PhD in computer engineering from the University of California, Santa Barbara. She has expertise in software research and development expertise in distributed systems, social computing, mobile, web, cloud, and machine learning and AI. Uh, today's guest is also incredibly passionate about advocating for technology in the community. I mentioned she's a GDG organizer, but she's also a conference and workshop organizer. There's a good chance that you've seen her give talks on Android development or machine learning in the past. Um, now there's a better chance that you'll hear her give a talk on Flutter, uh, Google's cross-platform development framework. Uh, that's because she's also a Google developer expert in Flutter. But currently, she's working at Microsoft. Um, there, is, there, she's focused on empowering developers building cloud and AI solutions with the Microsoft technology stack. By the way, did I mention that she also has a bunch of patents with her name on them? Well. She does. Polymath, developer, developer expert, developer advocate, community organizer, sketch noter supreme, person you need to follow on Twitter. Today's guest, ladies and gentlemen, is Nitya Narasimhan. Nitya, thanks for being here today on the podcast, and hopefully I didn't butcher your last name. Not at all. Thanks so much, Mike. And I can't even recognize myself. Who is this person? I want to meet them. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, thank you, thank you. I, I will say you're extremely generous because the, a lot of the the, the kind of profile um, that you brought to me was built up over two decades. So I kind of also want to make the point that none of this happens overnight. We're all like slogging away and we keep changing roles as we go. But that is a wonderful introduction and I thank you. Well, yes. I, I mean, you. this is all your work. I've done nothing here but just talk about, you know, just explaining it to the people who are listening. So, and in terms of generosity, I really appreciate you hanging out with us today. So we're going to have some fun. We're going to talk about some, some cool things and, but you're right though. Um, nothing happens, you know, you don't get to have a career like this overnight. So for folks who are, are listening, don't, you know, if you're just starting out, don't, don't compare yourself to somebody with 20 years of experience. It doesn't, it, it doesn't make sense for you and, and just kind of do your own thing and keep rocking on. So. Um, but we'll get into this. Let's let's do it. 
right? Yeah. I will okay. say that I think we might get into it later, but I have this thing that we're all lifelong beginners. So hopefully yes. that will later. We're, we're going to get into that. Cool. We're going to get into that. Um, but so Nitya, one thing I ask all of our guests um, right up off the bat, uh, you know, what, what do you, what do you do for a living? So if you don't mind, can you tell us what you do for a living? Absolutely. So I'm currently um, working at Microsoft on the developer relations team. My official title is I'm a regional program manager and I oversee US and Canada. And what that means is kind of like expanding out on that. I oversee developer programs for three different kinds of audiences, um, students, startups, and professional developers. And what that really means at the core is finding ways to go support the developer ecosystem, whatever that means. And I really love the fact that, you know, when I joined Microsoft, one of the reasons that I kind of really found it empowering is we were a very, very small team. And my manager at the time used to keep telling us all the time that we are building the plane as we fly it. And it really felt like a startup. You kind of felt that you were learning the process from the ground up. And the reason I bring that up is we really focus on three things. We focus on content, like how do you build tutorials? How do you write stuff that helps people understand complex technology? We focus on events. So you'll see me showing up at a bunch of events in that space in the US, supporting our advocates, trying to make sure people have resources that help them skill up. And then we support communities. And community is a very, very broad word. But to me, it's more than meetups. It's really people. It's like, how do you go and identify people that you can help? So long story short, develop relations. Um, think of it as the bridge between the technologists inside Microsoft and the community outside. And we are the advocates in the middle. We want to advocate for the community to our product teams. We want to advocate for the product team to our communities. Okay, perfect. I mean, so as someone in developer relations, I mean, would there be a, a would you want someone who's working on something in the Microsoft Cloud or AI space with some project? Do you want them to kind of reach out to you? Are there additional resources that they can find somewhere? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, I'll also say that one of the most awesome things is I'm beginning to realize like we are global. So wherever you are, reach out. If, if you're not in my region, I would love to connect you to one of my peers who will be. Um, you can reach me in one of many ways. Um, if you kind of like Twitter DMs are open, so it's Nithya on Twitter. You can also just my first dot last name at Microsoft.com is my email. Um, I'm also on Dev2. My preferred form is either reach out, like comment on my profile in Dev2 or just, you know, DM me on Twitter if you like, um, so that I get to know a little bit about who you are before we engage. But yes, absolutely. If you want to find specific resources, the Azure Advocates account on Twitter is a Microsoft Developer Advocates account. So you can find a lot of our advocates on there. Um, we are also devdoc2 slash Azure. So if you're looking for content, if you want to find out what kinds of things we do, that's the place to go. And I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't give a shout out to Docs and Learn. Um, and I, I'm actually most passionate about that. At the end of the day, we all learn somewhere. And so docs.microsoft.com should be your starting point or learn.microsoft.com. No matter what your level in life, you can go in there and just get started learning something Perfect. and that, that's hopefully useful and we'll we'll make sure that we have all that contact information down in the show notes so that way you could reach out to nitya and her team and uh, get your project going a little bit further along um so nitya here's the thing i'm a little I, i'm confused with so i imagine you've got to be kind of confused with or at least walking a very tight tight rope um with this you work at Microsoft, but you're also organizing Google developer community groups. Uh, talk about some of that um, 
you know, like, is there any confusion at events? Like which sign do you put up the Google sign or the Microsoft sign? Because I know, you know, you're doing the Hudson Valley group, the New York city group. And, um, and obviously you're, you're, you're doing the Microsoft dev relations. So I'll actually say that this is one of those where, um, community literally helps. So I need to like pause and rewind and tell you a little bit about the two GDG. Sure. Uh, and then we can talk about the other stuff. So GDG Hudson Valley was started probably around 2014, maybe it's been a while. And, Hutt, and New York is uh, 2012, it was way older, but then we rebooted it, right? The, the reality is I don't get to be an active person on those communities, but that's literally why we have co-organizers, right? So I founded that and then I can run events there. I'm obviously like, you know, there's Ralph and, um, on in New York and then the Hudson Valley one is an interesting story because we work very closely with the university there, SUNY New Paltz to run events. And so there are two things about this. One is um, the things we did, and I'd love to talk about specific instances of how communities differ and that's something to learn. But in terms of what I do right now, I don't tend to do GDG events as GDG events or Microsoft events as Microsoft events. I tend to think of it as community. So as an example, uh, let's think about Global Diversity CFP Day. Where it makes sense, I'll actually go do that on the GDG site as well as run it through Microsoft. And we all want to support the same community. But I'm also, and this I think is more about me, I'm also very respectful to the fact that, you know, they're both of them work together well. There are going to be areas, especially in open source, where Flutter is going to be one thing, hopefully again this year. But uh, there are going to be places like open source stuff where there is no conflict of interest. But in general, I want to be respectful. Like I am an Azure advocate or a developer relations team member. So I want to make sure that I'm focusing on that in my day job. But from a community perspective and looking at the GDG, I still know all the organizers. I still know a lot of folks. So I, I kind of look at my role there now as facilitate the current active organizers and then bring some of the Microsoft folks into the GDG or the GDG folks mm -hmm. into Microsoft where it makes sense. And we actually have a lot of GDEs who are Microsoft employees right now, right? And I'm fairly sure that we're seeing a lot of Microsoft talks showing up at DevFest, fingers crossed. So uh, the bigger picture is, I think that the, the, the good thing is neither organization has said yes, no, or anything like that. The bigger, big, bigger thing is we need to look at ourselves. Um, here's something you probably know and I know, but the GDGs are actually owned by the organizers. They're not owned by Google, right? It's really our community, like what we choose to do with it and how we used to take it forward. Um, and the same way with kind of like Azure, we have communities outside of Microsoft, like the same way GDs, there are MVPs and things like that. So to me, having been in New York, I actually think of it as a New York community. It doesn't matter to me where you, if you're, in fact, you're going to come from AWS. And if I have, you come to me with a question, I will help you if I know how. The biggest constraint I think for me these days though is time. Oh. Uh, the, it has become extremely, extremely, uh, overburdened to kind of like dedicate time for everything. And that means that I try to be really tactical about how I want to engage. And one of the things I want to talk about, hopefully if we get time is maybe in the flutter sense, right? That I'm beginning to see that, especially as we move towards online, that it really, nobody sees you as this or that, right? They're just looking for who's giving me educational skilling up content at this time that I can connect with. And so I kind of want to pivot towards focusing more on building content that can help both communities. And there's going to be places where there's intersection. Where there's conflict, I'm going to stay out of it because I do think I want to respect both sides. I'm always going to be a Google technology fan, let's face it. And I mean, I'm going to be like Azure. 
and I didn't know that there were there were Azure um, dev groups, which is awesome. So I mean, yeah. we'll we'll try to we'll try to promote some of that out there too. I mean, I imagine there's a page. That I should say, work. yeah, just the way GDG, you know, you, there's a yeah. pro. That, this is called the Azure Tech Community. So if you look for Azure Tech Communities under the Meetup Pro, they're there. Perfect. But Microsoft, uh, I will say that after I joined, I was one of those folks. Like when you're outside, you really don't know the extent of the ecosystem. They actually have a bunch of different communities. Like there's a Dynamics community and there's a 365 and there's a Power Platforms community. And some of these folks are incredibly passionate. So I think at some point we all have to take off these labels from our head and look at community as community, right? If you can really whatever you know, if you can help someone else because you had a good ride, then you need to like turn around and raise them up. So I think in that context, it really doesn't matter. That's perfect. Um, a perfect answer there because we, that's kind of what this is about is giving back yeah. and, and trying to inspire folks to give back. So um, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. Um, Nidia, I want to go into your education, right? So, so you did undergrad work in India. Um, you took a year, you got some work experience and then you went back to school, got your graduate and PhD work in computer engineering and distributed systems at UC Santa Barbara. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Santa Barbara I hear is beautiful, by the way. Um, it is. Is, is that, and all of that is incredibly fascinating. And I'd love to talk more about that, but I think our listeners would be more interested uh, in hearing about your latest learning endeavors, right? So you're currently taking an intro to Python programming course. Um, tell us a bit about that and what got you interested in taking that course and your classmate? Oh, uh, will do. And I'll actually, I'm going to beg your patience and set a little context for uh, my history in computing. So then you'll know a little bit about my partner sure. as well. Um, I'm not sure about you, but my first computer was a ZX Spectrum. Um, and I did basic, you know, one of those people who my dad had it, like, he played games and then I learned how to do a little 8-bit thing. I and then do it, Right. I had a head start, a head start, uh, and I learned that's where I learned basic myself as well. So yay! So the I'll, I'll kind of connect the dots to my um, co-pilot, but um, I also want to say that we should revisit the education side because I'm very, very passionate about making sure that people belong in tech, and I want to talk about the fact that your path there doesn't matter. But anyway, so to kind of connect the dots, when I was eight, nine years old, maybe that's when I basically started playing with computers and learning this. Um, and so now my, I have a son who is 11. And um, to be honest, he has been playing with computers for the longest time because, and this is where I will give a huge shout out to GDG. All the GDG organizers know me because of the fact that GDG New York City used to run DevFest and all that, right? So his earliest exposure was literally showing up at my meetups, right? He would hang out with me. He'd listen to people. One of the um, kind of my earliest recollections was running an Android study jam at Google Developer Group Hudson Valley. We had the department head for the CS department supporting us. We're running an independent uh, study thing. And so we were doing this like evening session. Um, I just want to set the stage for who this kid is. So, you know, like, you know, this is not me. And I remember that the head of the department talked about what Google meant and it meant infinity, you know, so what Google meant. And he kind of said it's a big number or something. And everyone, every student is listening, and then this little voice pipes up, says, you're wrong. Google, like the biggest number is infinity. It's not a Google, right? And I'm like, oh, God, why, why? And everyone swivels around, and there's this tiny kid eating a piece of pizza, drinking his soda, and like just like, I'm contributing to the conversation. And I was like, you know, this is what learning is, this right there. 
That's what we need. We need fearlessness. If you have something to say, say it because you learned something in the process and bless Hudson Valley and SUNY New Falls, they're amazing people. They all knew him, they let him and they understood, right? But fast forward, he's been at DeFest where um, Sheldon, I want to give a shout out to Sheldon and Sarah from Arizona. They, they ran the Nodebox contest and he actually sat and worked with robotics. Um, done Mindstorms. I used to be a coach for the FLL League in Hudson Valley. So he got to learn about that. He never programmed. Most of these things were like drag and drop, right? But uh, what happened is like now he's in middle school. Um, I have no idea. Something went up. So one day he woke up and he was like, okay, I have time. I want to work with Mindstorms, but I don't want to work with that because his dad was, oh yeah. Well, I want to real quickly explain that Mindstorms is the Le Lego Mindstorms. So where you can build Legos and then control them with, with code and uh, smaller motors. Yes. So. And uh, not only that, you have motor sensors and you can build right. projects with, you know, kind of like the Lego blocks to create like dinosaurs that run around and things like that. Yep. But uh, the Lego League is very important because it's a contest. And he kind of got experience in like just being around kids who did that. However, I have a spouse who knows Python. I don't know Python. I'm a Java, JavaScript, Android, mobile kind of person. But they started working together because they were like, oh, why are we using this drag and drop interface? Let's reboot and install. Like first they put Raspberry Pi and then they got a Lego Pi, I think it was. They started working, but even then it was just like copy paste code. That's where he was. And then I was like, okay, now you're at a stage where I want you to know, like systematically learn programming. Um, I'll also say here, and this is where it's a throwback to my studies. I'm a computer engineering. There is a lot of stuff, like there is a real amount of bias in this world about, oh, you need to be a computer science person. And it's not true. Programming is about problem solving. Wherever you go, if you can see patterns, problem solve, and learn to pro solve them with code, you'll be fine. I'm tying this back to that because effectively, it started with trying to solve problems, right? And then finding patterns in the code that express that problem. And that's why we started. So we started kind of like, he started doing a Udacity course. I was like, okay, you need to systematically do something. There's a Udacity course, you should go for it. And he started writing tiny bits of code and working and by with- By the way, he's 11. Just wanna point that out. He's 11. Oh, but yeah, don't worry. But I, I think I've seen like kids who are 13 who are doing machine learning. So I've got great hopes for him now. <laughs> I don't actually. Uh, I, I I refuse to put pressure at all. I think you have to indulge curiosity. Well, he yeah, he's but he's interested in this. So I, yeah, you're not you're not like the 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 sports mom who's pressuring your son into sports or anything like that, or or or, or the, the the machine learning mom pressuring your son into machine learning. He's in he's genuinely interested in this stuff, and so you're just kind of encouraging him. Which is, you know, so you know, he's so okay. You're at the point now in the story where he is now signing up for a Udacity course on learning Python programming. He did, and it's an intro one, and yep. he actually just kind of zoomed through it, right? Like basically for him, it was like here is a task, go do it. So he'd watch the videos, and then they'd give him exercises. He'd do it, do it, do it, check it off, and move on, right? Okay. And um, I think that was my moment of sin, and that was my thread. Uh, and it turned out like I'm amazed at how many people resonated with it. At some point, I really wanted him to understand what he was doing. The value to coding is when you can take it and translate it to a problem and actually apply it to solve it, right? So I was like, are you really understanding what you're doing? Or are you just like, you know, copy pasting and like fixing a few things and achieving the exact end result? And so uh, there was a, and I kind of forget the author and the name of the book, but it's a, it's Python gaming for kids, right? Like you can build tiny little games. Okay. So we got a copy of the book and 
I was like, okay, first of all, to make sure the Udacity course that you're doing, that you understand it, I'm going to start doing it too. And <laughs> I'm a sketch noter. So that's a whole different conversation about visual learning. I sketch note everything because it's the way I understand. The minute he saw me taking it, it was interesting because his role flipped. He decided he was going to be my mentor, right? <laughs> so he would come in and he'd be like, are you studying? And let me sit with you and, oh, you're not doing that right. Because he'd done all the exercises already. And I'm like, oh my God. But <laughs> I, I, I dealt with it, right? And I'm like, great. And I can figure out stuff by looking at the code, but he knows the syntax. So he'd be, he'd be looking at it saying, you don't have semicolons in Python. And I'm like, thank you. Because I'm like, you know, where, where I come from, the semicolons, all right. So then he's doing all this and we're sketch noting and he's having a blast, but I'm still like, we need to take this further. It was awesome. So we actually are right now he's finished the course and I haven't. So I'm in the black. He's kind of still reminding when he comes back home today, he'll be like this weekend, we are going to finish your course. And I'm like, yes, I've been busy. I'm so sorry, but it's going to happen. But to me, what was interesting was um, the translation to the games. So he started using Trinket. And he built a very simple game. And I'm not saying he built it because there are examples in the book and he took that. But the moment of Zen for me was he, it was a very simple text adventure where, you know, you just print statements. There's a conditional this or that, take a path, and then you print another statement. Right. And the story was about a dragon and treasure. And uh, it, that was to me was the moment of Zen. Like I'm looking at this kid who is actually, if you look at him, will look very serious. And he's just like, He's just rolling around laughing because the dragon didn't get the treasure, then the dragon got the treasure. And it and I realized at that moment that there are two things people forget when we talk about code. One is there is an incredible amount of creativity and like joy in making something. People who make something invariably love it. Like if you can tangibly say that's something I did, even if you take will. I'll go off at tangents, but this is the Betty Crocker example from before, right? They found that Betty Crocker, they, when they, she sold cake mix that was pre-made, nobody found satisfaction. But they said, we'll send you the cake mix, but you have to add eggs, right? And bake it yourself. People had pride because they felt like, oh, now I made the cake. It wasn't all done. Like I have to do stuff. Same thing here. You gave them something which is 80% done, but they had to do the 20%. And that gave them ownership. And to me, it was like, wow, that is amazing. And the second thing ties back to what I love, which is storytelling. The fact is that his contribution to the code may not have been great because all he was doing is changing the dialogue and creating more paths, right? But that's a that's that. But yeah, but that's still that's such a that's such an amazing way to learn, though. I mean, that... absolutely. And the 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 step beyond was where I had my moment of zen, um, because. Again, to my point, it's very easy for you to take someone's code. We all start there. But how do you get to the point where you learn to apply what you learned to a problem that was not structured the way you expected? And this is where we kind of veered off into me challenging him to say, well, that's a text adventure. I want you to do a snakes and ladders game, right? Take the same code that you have. And now instead of like this text adventure, where you're coming in, you're going right or left. You're going to write me a program where every time you're going to roll the dice and the dice are going to tell you which direction to take. And then you move. And then based on whether you encounter a snake or a ladder, you have to take a decision and blah, 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 until you go. Right. And uh, it became a really fascinating conversation. Because when you put the problem in words and then tell them, go do it, 
the and I think I say this in the thread too. The satisfaction for me was not that he knew how to do it because he didn't. The satisfaction for me was the first words were, how do I do this? It wasn't, can I do this? That's what we all do. That's imposter syndrome. I don't know how to do this. Can I do this is imposter syndrome. Oh. This kid didn't say, can I do this? Said, how? Tell me where I start and I will figure it out or tell me what to do and I will do it and I will learn, right? And I thought that that to me was like, that's when I was like, yes, now you're learning the essence of programming. And this is the one big message. There was actually in Codeland yesterday, Scott Hanselman did a keynote that ties into this super well. Um, when he talked about like, you know, programming, he, his talk was really amazing and you should check it out, but he'll put up the slide at one point with Tim Berners-Lee picture and it'll say underneath web developer. And that to me, that right there, Tim Berners-Lee doesn't call himself a senior web developer. He doesn't call himself a distinguished member of the web developer league. He <laughs> says, I'm a web developer. That's it. Same yep. thing here. I'm a problem solver is what you need to be as a coder. Not I am a Python expert. No, because the things we took away from this is if you have a problem, you can break it down and solve it. See the patterns and you'll be able to figure it out. Second thing is hack, test, repeat. You don't need to figure it all out. You can figure it out as you go along. So I think that was awesome. Yeah. And, and, like I said, just a nice, you, you wrote this beautiful thread on, on Twitter about this experience with your son. And I just, that was, it was very beautiful. It was very empathetic, um, a way of kind of treating the world, right. Um, where you've got these kind of concept of beginners and, and experience versus knowledge. Yeah. And I thought that was really beautiful because it's, and, and especially the experience versus knowledge, um, concept. Um, mm -hmm. tell us, tell us more about that. Yeah, I'm very proud of that thread. I think that's the one where I was basically talking about lifelong beginners, right? And understanding that we are all beginners. So if I remember right, the analogy I was using was about the Smithsonian and people are scratching their heads going, what's the Smithsonian got to do with this? <laughs> and my, um, if you indulge me for five minutes, I'm going to set the stage for this. The, 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 yeah. The, uh, so first and foremost, I nowadays do a lot of stuff around visual storytelling and I've come to realize that we as technologists and advocates need to make technology understandable and relatable to people. And that means that you use whatever tools you can to communicate concepts. And in fact, if you look at my Twitter profile, my pinned mission statement is literally that I want to do things that help kind of communicate complex ideas in simple ways. Right. So in this case, the analogy is the Smithsonian and it's as follows. I was getting really, really tired of how much tech labels people. You're an expert, you're a beginner, you're, uh, you know, like, I don't know, senior versus junior. And we all have heard of imposter syndrome all the time. And all of us have kind of worked through this saying, okay, imposter syndrome, we have to like power our way through it. We have to do self-esteem and I've done all that stuff. This was me sitting down and saying, I have to rethink this. And the rethinking is we need to reclaim that word beginner. Today, the word beginner is being used as a way to put people in a box, right? I've been in tech for 20, 30 years and people will come to me and be like, oh, you don't know this, you're a beginner. And I'm like, that is not exactly true. Initially, my, my, my immediate thing is to be a, like defensive, right? What are you talking about? I've been in tech 30 years. You can't call me a beginner. Then I realized that is not actually right. I am a beginner and I'm proud of it. I will tell you that I'm proud that I started learning Python, although I've done Python before. But I call this learning Python and I started journey with him because it's the first time I took a course in Python. 
everywhere else, I look at code, we all do this, right? We're like, oh, I know the syntax, I can figure it out, get this, hack it, do it. And so what I wanted to do is say, let's reclaim beginner as a badge of pride, right? And what does a beginner mean? A beginner is someone who's on a journey. And that's all that means, that you're on a journey. And who you are when you started and who you are when you ended, that's what makes the journey important. And I could have done 20 years of Python and you've done six months, but in that particular journey, we are exactly the same. But we are not exactly the same in the broader perspective because I'm coming in with 20 years of pattern recognition, design patterns, how to like compile, how to debug. You're coming in knowing nothing. But in that particular context, we are on this journey together. So that was literally me and my son. I come in with 20 years, he comes in with six months. But at that time of journey, we were totally in sync. So the Smithsonian analogy to me was, let's stop talking about beginners and let's look at expertise versus what you're actually doing. So the Smithsonian analogy is, the Smithsonian is this vast storehouse of knowledge. That is literally our brain. In the statistic on the thread shows that any given point in time, only 2%, 2% of the Smithsonian content is on display. That's literally who we are. If you come talk to me at any given point in time, you're getting 2% of my identity, 2%. You don't know anything more than what I'm talking to you about right now. But like the Smithsonian, I have vaults and vaults and vaults and vaults of knowledge behind me. And at any given point in time, like the way we have five museums, maybe I have five roles or facets. Developer relations, that's one. Sketch noter is another. Parent is another. Yeah. Community advocate is another. And you see me, the 2% of my exhibits through that lens. And you judge me on that. And what I really want you to think about is don't. Judge me by the giant warehouse of knowledge sitting behind me, because when I need to, I can pull up a new exhibit that reflects the context of what we want to learn. And so for me, expertise is really about having like active knowledge use in a certain context, right? Knowledge is about everything you know. So the Smithsonian warehouse is your knowledge, and we all have knowledge. If you have gone and learned to drive a car, you have knowledge about design patterns. You may not know it, but you yeah. do, right? And, and, and that part, I mean, that that part I love. And I wanna, I wanna say, so this is something I always struggle with, especially, you know, working with younger developers. You know, mm -hmm. I, I make sure I try to promote the achievements of younger developers I work with. I steer, I try to steer them away from obstacles that I can help them avoid. Um, however, when you're a senior developer and you go and, and you let go of some part of an app or maintenance process, I know that I, me personally, I feel like I'm failing by not knowing everything about every line of code that the team is responsible for. You know, so when I read the follow, you know, I read the following and it was like kind of a mental hug and I just want to read one bit of the thread for everyone, right? Um, so, you know, X knows more about, X knows more than Y about topic Z right now because X has been using Z more than recently than why, but why might have written the might have written the first book on Z. It's, it's just a beautiful sentiment, like you know, like exactly what you're saying about the, with the Smithsonian analogy that you have all of this experience in your back pocket, and you you are a beginner at something. But <clears throat> excuse me, but there are people that are experts in. Countless things, and that we're all beginners at at something, and you're you're never going to know everything. And yeah. I, I just I thought that was just it was it was kind of like saying, hey, it's it's okay to not know everything, because yeah. we, you know when when you look at Twitter and you see you, I mean that's the thing. One of the reasons why I wanted to do this podcast was to kind of help folks 
get through imposter syndrome because when you look through Twitter, you know, you see people with 20 years of experience, they're they're giving talks, they're doing all these amazing things, and you're kind of like, "Whoa. Um why what's going on here? Why why do I why am I not doing that? Why why is so there's all these feelings that you get and and then you feel like, "Oh, well, I should be doing this. I should be doing that." And it's it's not you should be celebrating their accomplishments, right? And then trying to learn other things and just keep going and being happy where you're at right now, but learning to move forward. And that's yeah. I think the biggest thing because as you learn to be move forward, you're getting more ex, you know more experience in that new thing, and yeah. you're learning something. So it's just really beautiful sentiment and very true. Uh, yeah, and really I think in that I might have said this, which I believe in, which is we are all beginners in everything. We are beginners in everything because at any given point in your life. In the current journey you're on, you're always starting something new. Like today, if I'm learning Python, I'm starting a journey. I'm a beginner in that. If I decide to pick up gardening, I'm a beginner in that. But the expertise is really about what I am actively using right now. So we are all experts in something. Yeah. Whatever I'm actively working on, I'm an expert in it. I'm an expert right now in developer relations, perhaps, and program management. But I'm a beginner in everything else. And the other thing I'll also say, because like we can talk about Flutter, we can talk about Android. Um, we can talk about fault tolerance is I know for a fact, 30 years plus, right, in industry, that everyone gains expertise and they lose it. Expertise is very ephemeral. Knowledge is forever. I did a PhD in distributed systems with fault tolerance, right? Used it once, one time in my job in all these years. So you can ask yourself, are you a fault tolerance expert? And I would be like, no, I'm not a fault tolerance expert because I'm not actively using it. Right. But am I, do I have fault tolerance knowledge? You bet. Because if tomorrow you came to me and said, hey, I have a fault tolerance problem. Can you solve it? I'll be like, bring it on. And it'll take me much less time to go into, and this is where the Smithsonian analogy really works for me. When I, when you come to me and say, do you have a fault tolerance? Like, can you do fault tolerance? I'll be like, hang on a second. I have these six Smithsonian's. Which one do you want me to empty and put your fault tolerance project in? I will retire all of these and bring my fault tolerance artifacts, dust them off, clean them up, spend a little bit of time, and I will be ready to handle your problem. Because the human brain is an incredible machine, incredible. You dust off your knowledge and you put it to use and that memory comes back. Muscle memory is strong. The patterns that you built in, right? You need to dust them off, but you will. So the knowledge is always there. Expertise is very fleeting, which is why I'm like very uncomfortable when people call me an expert. I'm like, no, 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 I'm not an expert because I'm not actively using it, but I have knowledge. When you give me a project, I will become an expert in it then, right? And I don't know if that makes sense to you, but that's the way I think or, about it. And that helps. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's just, it's a beautiful sentiment and very true. You know, we can't all know everything about everything, you know, but keep moving forward. Don't fret on what you haven't learned or what you've forgotten keep learning and moving forward. It's incredibly empathetic too, because again, you look at everybody as an expert at something. Uh, and and when you when everyone you come across is an expert in some field, but beginners and countless others. Um, so it's just, it's beautiful. Um, and, and so thank you for that. I, and I, I highly recommend folks to read through uh, Nitya's Twitter threads. And you're, she just told me before we started recording that she's turning them into essays. So we're going to have links to both of those, the threads themselves and the essays when they come online um, in the show notes. Um, 
And, and I just, I encourage everyone to read both of those threads because they really are inspiring and that's the point of the show. So, um, but okay. So here's a, and here's a fun segue. Okay. We talk about not everybody's an expert, but, uh, you, you have the label of being an expert, a Google developer expert. So yeah. speaking of being an expert, you're a Google developer expert in Flutter. Mm -hmm. uh, so as a Flutter expert, tell us a bit about Flutter because a lot of people may not know what it is and, and maybe why, if I'm starting a new project, why I should consider using Flutter. Okay. So I'll also reset this to say, I think I started in Flutter about two years ago, right? Like that's when it first came out and uh, a bunch of us were very early on adopting it. Um, to set the stage, you should know that my background is mobile. Prior to joining or doing any of the stuff, I worked in Motorola Research for over a decade. Like mobile phones are my lifeblood. I really love them. And then to set the stage for Flutter, um, post Motorola, I actually spent about five years as an independent web developer. And this should tell you why Flutter is important. Flutter is actually an open source framework from Google. And really at the core, it's about finding, it's a, it's a mobile UI framework. It allows you to go and build mobile apps with a single source code base that's in Dart that can be translated, built, and shipped in mobile app markets like iOS and Android, right? So at the core, that looks like a nice magical proposition. Write once, run everywhere. And right now, if I'm not mistaken, we're expanding that out into desktop. You can kind of write Flutter and have like things that'll work in the web, et cetera. But to me at the time I started, why it was interesting is when I started looking at the provenance of Flutter and Dart, it was very web friendly. It, yeah, well, uh, so what, so explain a little bit, what is Dart? Dart is another, uh, it was actually a language from Google that if I remember right, more than five, six years ago when we're doing, uh, like there was a Dart flight school, that's my first encounter with Dart. So Dart is also an open source um, framework from Google that is the basis on which Flutter is built. But uh, what level of, what, what kind of, level of information do you want on Dart? Well, it's almost like JavaScript-y, right? So it's very, it's very, it feels like JavaScript, right? Um, uh, it does. So if you, the whole idea, I think at the time, and I don't want to say it's because it's been a while, so I don't want to get in trouble, but I remember when Dart first came out, it was seen as a way for people who wanted a cleaner, simpler JavaScript, right? Like, so it had very clear syntax, uh, well-typed, what was really nice about it for the Flutter perspective was the garbage com collection on that, right? Was allowed you to like really have really, really fast response time. But what made Dart interesting to me is you could actually run Dart in the browser. You can you can go in and use the Dart playground. What was the, what's the app that you can build Dart apps on today? You can try out Dart code in the browser. Do you remember? I think it's dartlang.org. No, no, there's a playground. There's a there's a there's um, an editor, but I forget. It's been a while since I played with it. But okay. Effectively, um, what it allows you to do is if you're new to coding, you can look at Dart and really pick up the syntax very quickly and easily. And then you can actually build out fairly simple apps very fast. You can try them out in the browser. You can actually compile them using the Flutter SDK and have mobile and Android, like Android and iOS apps built for you without having to know the syntax of those. And at the end of the day, it kind of, I think like um, if my understanding was correct, it was about performance, garbage collection, and strong typing. That's the reason why we went with that. Yeah, cool. I mean, and so, uh, you know, for folks who are interested in doing a mobile project and having a one code base, and and Flutter is a really good opportunity for that. Um, so, what's the best way 
you know, to learn Flutter. Dogpad, for anyone. Dogpad, yeah, sorry. Yeah. So what are, what's the best way to learn Flutter for anyone that's interested? Oh, that one is actually easy. Flutter's documentation is hands down the best. So I've started using Flutter more with VS Code, but I think you can still use it with the Android Studio. The easiest way for you to start is go to the flutter.dev site and start with their basic tutorials. They have a bunch of very simple tutorials that you can try out. There's also a code lab site that'll walk you through a simple example of building a mobile app, one that'll work with mobile and a backend Firebase. So you can actually build a full-fledged app that will have both front ends in mobile, um, sorry, Android and iOS and a web app, et cetera. And that allows you to kind of work through examples for things like animations, which provide you a much higher quality of experience for the mobile app, right? Um, the other thing that I want to say is I think there's a Udacity course. I'm not sure if it's been updated recently. It's been a while since I actually looked at all of these. But there is a Udacity course. And recently, around like two, three months ago, there was a, a course released by the Flutter team that walked through an end-to-end -end app. Um, who was a, what was the site that released it? There was a third-party site that they built the entire tutorial on. So I can send you the links for the resource, so you sure. probably know them already. But to me personally, the easiest way to kind of get started with Flutter is start by downloading the, the SDK, get the example code from the site, install it, and start playing with the tutorial, starting with the basic, getting started, learn how to build very simple components, walk through the component tutorials, figure out how you can lay out different kinds of user interfaces, and then scale yourself up to higher level features. I personally thought the animations was really, really cool. It really makes you provide very rich user experiences without much overhead. And I, and I was just going to say, to that point of user experience, it's not like, uh, for folks who might remember some of the JavaScript kind of web pages that looked like mobile, uh, that kind of got dumped into an app container, it's not. it doesn't look like that at all. It's very fresh. It's very clean. It, very, it feels very much like an iOS or an Android app. So mm -hmm. uh, don't, don't worry too much about that. And it's a, it's a fantastic SDK to learn. Um, Dart's a really cool language. Um, I'll put all the links to all of that stuff in the show notes so folks can kind of get into in, who are interested can get into it because it really is um, a really cool, um, even if you're just playing around, it's pretty cool. But if you're thinking about doing something for your next mobile app, you've got a client, you don't want to have to build two different code bases. It's a really cool way to kind of get stuff done. Yes. And I think that are two things that I want to really, really highly promote around Flutter. Yes. One is building things in Flutter is much easier because you're using, you have like the whole Dart package ecosystem behind you. You don't have to really build everything from scratch. It's very easy for you to go and find packages that can help you get the basic features you want and just literally focus on the user experience. So to a large extent, the community behind Flutter is why you want to be there. The community has built out a lot of open source packages. I think there's a Flutter community site and uh, an app site where you can go and see open source projects that showcase existing apps as well. One of the things that I have found valuable is to literally fork an open source project or look at it and then start from there and build your way up. Right, and and one of the other cool things, and I know I don't, I don't wanna spend too much time on this love fest that Nitya and I have for Flutter, but one of the other cool things is you can kind of, you can also write native code that plugs into your Flutter app. So you could write native Android code that plugs in or native um, Swift code that plugs into your iOS version of the app. Really cool stuff. Um, but, but one of the things, like I said, I, I, I wanted to bring the two Emilys in uh, to Florida to give a talk at that DevFest. And obviously, you know, coming from the West Coast, it wasn't as easy to, to as a thing to do. I mean, I think Emily Fortuna came in at the next DevFest, which was awesome. Yeah. But, um, yeah. 
one of the things that I'm finding is that there's a lot of women who are getting into flutter development. Yes. And, and I think that's really cool. Um, and there's an actually, um, there's something called flutteristas. What is that? Oh, please, 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 please. You got to thank you for giving them a shout out. Um, first of all, before I even like say another word, I have to give a huge shout out to Nile. So if, if you don't, if you know flutter, you need to follow Nile Yenner. So that's N Y E N E R on Twitter. Um, she's been the kind of like the, I, I guess, the community facing side of the Flutter team. Yep. She's the one who works with a lot of folks. So she relentlessly kind of tries to connect people together. But And I think between Nile and Emily Fortuna, Emily was one of the Emilies, um, way back when we kind of had this discussion on how do we get more women to start playing with Flutter, right? And I am very proud of this fact, although it's been like a couple of years since. I think I was the first woman GD in Flutter. Like now yeah. I think there are more. Okay. Yeah, now Pooja's there. Uh, I don't know how many more have come in since, but at the time I was like maybe the third or fourth GD in, in, in the US at the time, there weren't that many. Most of the GDs were outside and I was the first woman. Um, and I kind of thought that what, what really fascinated me is if you look at the Android side and you look at iOS, the number of women developers is huge. If you look at the Android GDs, right? There are a lot of really stellar women, like who are amazing. They're not just coders, but they're amazing educators. And um, Flutter totally lends itself to that. Not only that, both web and mobile. So Flutteristas was, I think, initially started off as this kind of just a chat group of people finding each other and like encouraging more women to join and like learn to build with Flutter and then share their experiences. And uh, the reason this is a great time to talk about it is um, they just started an official meetup so if you go to meetup.com and look for Flutteristas, there is a Flutterista meetup in San Francisco. And I think Nile is the organizer. And also um, kind of like a couple of community folks are co-organizers. Um, Flutterfly, yes, Flutterfly. Um, the value for this is they're running online events. So if you are someone who is new to Flutter, you want to have a safe environment, more kind of you know women or underrepresented folks just want to hang out and chat with them, join the meetup or there is actually a discord group as well. You can hit up Nilay or ping me on DM me on Twitter and be happy to connect you. Um, it's a great place to be. And I think the, the bigger thing that we can think about with this is not just about having a place for women to communicate, but understanding that it's not just about flutter. So it's kind of a weird segue, but whenever we talk about community, we are always so focused on code. We also need to think about the people and having communities that support women in tech in whatever area they're in allows them to have conversations that extend beyond that. So as an example, I think last month, um, I did a talk for them and I did it on self-care because at this time in our lives, and you've heard that one too, yeah. um, it was like, hey, these are things we need to talk about. But yeah, Flutteristas is the name of the meetup. There's a Discord group and just chat with me. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to put, again, I'm putting a whole bunch of stuff in the show notes. I hope it all fits. I mean, we might have to break the show up into two parts just to get all that stuff to fit. But even, we'll, we'll put it all in the, you know, we'll definitely make sure that it's uh, out there, even if it's on um, the show's pot, uh, Twitter pot, uh, Twitter account, we'll put it up. Um, yeah. And and I'm, I'm actually, I would love to get Nile on, um, on the show just to talk about some of that stuff because it is really cool stuff. And again, you know, Flutter isn't just for women or anything like that. It's it's just this group of women who have come together around a technology stack. Yeah. I think I, that's I, so I, fascinating. And it and some of the women are so cool. It's just 
you know. Yes, I, I will. Um, I, I do want to kind of give a shout out a couple of things. So way back when we were doing GDG Flutter jams, like those study jams and things around that, um, I remember this because we ran an all day Flutter camp in New York City, like a full day of training, like do the workshops, do the code labs. And then at the end of the day, show and tell. 15 minutes, build an app, show something. And if you go back and look at the page and you look at the projects, there are a whole bunch of women who are able to come up with interesting ideas, build and show it, right? Um, second thing is that I think, and I want to make the case for anyone who's listening, if you're a woman in tech and not only about Flutteristas, but you think that you have an idea that you want to bring to life, look at Flutter and join the community because it really is easy for you to get up to speed and build something and ship it in a week, not ship it, but let's say build it and kind of prototype and play with it in a weekend. And it's very easy for you to kind of like find things and find people to help showcase it because yes, Flutter is more mature, but I'm also going to argue that it's way more visible than the Android market. So if you build something in Flutter, there's a higher likelihood that you can actually have conversations around it, go talk about it, et cetera. And I'm just going to segue by saying that when you work in Flutter, don't just build stuff, go talk about it. Yeah, I mean, because the community is so fresh and so new that you, when you do build an app in that technology stack, you can, you know, you're able to get a lot more limelight around it. Yes. And so it's it, it's it's just really cool. I mean, and and to Nitya's point about shipping, you you actually can ship an app in a week. It's it is possible. We did it um, for DevFest Florida. I think we. And and then I think we did it for DevFest New York a few years ago. So it's yes, it's we, totally we possible, totally possible, totally possible. But there are so many things that every single person coming into the ecosystem can contribute that you may not realize, right? Yeah. So even a new person coming in, if they explain something and they can actually showcase it and then take it and do a talk to your local community and get two other people to build an app with you, that will actually help your community that will be huge. So I'm going to put a kind of a plug for this broader area that they call citizen app development, um, low code, no code, all those solutions. I hope people who are working in mobile or web, who even have a little bit of JavaScript experience can start thinking about looking at Flutter for something like this. And the idea here is that you don't need to know how to build everything. You need to have an idea. You need to know how to plan out the components and the UI. And then you need to go find other apps or open source code that provides examples of how to connect these together. And then you should be able to get yourself a simple app that has a front end, a back end, a database, analytics, and, whole nine yards. And if you're passionate about, like I said, that it, it can happen pretty quickly if you're really passionate about it. Um, so, so Nitya, I want to, so we're talking about community now. Um, yeah. And, you know, so you've got, you've got the, the ones in New York that you help uh, co-organize. Um, but one of the things I want to try to do with that, is, because I mean, you, you're in a whole bunch of different communities. I want to talk about how we can help get more people to get up at meetups and present. So, you know, back in the olden days where we used to actually meet in person, um, you know, you, you would walk into a room and you would see folks who would sit in the back at every meetup and kind of not talk to folks and just kind of sit there. And it's that's that's a great thing to do, you know, participate in the community. But I feel that there's such a high that comes with public speaking that you, you kind of just want everybody to get in on it. Um, what advice would you give someone that's interested in technology 
that attends the meetups, but thinks public speaking isn't for them. Oh my God. Are you, are you, are you like literally trying to feed me stuff? I'll talk for another hour on, but, um, <laughs> so I am, this is something I, that I can set a timer if you'd like. <laughs> you probably should. Um, this is something that I am super passionate about, but I want to expand this out to a bunch of people. So two things. First, look for something called Global Diversity CFP Day. We run it every year. It's not just us. It's worldwide. Go look up GDCFP Day um, and kind of just understand what that movement is about once a year um, on a single day worldwide. Um, all communities set up this one day of like workshopping where you can go in and set yourself up to be a better public speaker. And the CFP stands for call for proposals. Most conferences will have a call for proposals. And the idea here is you actually need two things when you think about becoming a public speaker, right? Even before you get to the point where you panic because you don't want to stand in front of a crowd. Let's put that aside for now. You have two things you need before you want to be, before you become a public speaker. First is you need the equivalent of a speaker bio. You need people to know who you are and why you are an authority to talk about this topic, right? Second is you need the equivalent of the CFP, which is like for that specific conference, they're looking for specific things. You need to basically put your proposal and get it accepted. And it's harder than it seems initially, right? So at Global Diversity CFP Day, many communities do their own thing. In New York, we've done it three years in a row. Um, and I work with Rightspeak Code. So a huge shout out to Rightspeak Code, which is a wonderful organization you should join. They run classes and meetups all the time to help you. But what we used to do, and I want to run this anecdote because it's a powerful example of how much having someone believe in you will help you. In our meetups or like in our conference, we'll spend the morning doing a speaker bio. So you learn how to write your speaker bio. Second day, we'll, I mean, second half would like help you brainstorm an idea and figure it out. And then have people from the community come and talk about how you get a CFP done, uh, what conferences in you can kind of like apply to, et cetera. Then we'd always end the day with everyone taking a pledge that if by the end of the year, they have not submitted CFP, I will hunt them down and make them talk at my meetup. And lo and behold, year on year, we've had 10 people or more get accepted, submit and get accepted. More importantly, my genuine moment of joy was going to abstractions.com, going to rightspeak.co.conf, et cetera, getting on a stage after 20 years of public speaking, getting off the stage, and the next person is someone who came to our workshop and is now standing on stage right after me, having been accepted. There have been international keynoters from our, our team, right? So, But coming back to your question, how can you help? Uh, I often start every one of those workshops with two things. One, do it for yourself. First, you always, no matter what you do in life, you have to have motivation. So first motivation is do it for yourself. Public speaking as a woman in tech is going to be your number one way to get noticed and be visible and actually build a brand for yourself, right? It lives on. You do a talk, you throw it out there, and people find it years later, and it helps connect you. So do it for yourself. But if you're not going to do it for yourself, do it for everybody else. If you're so afraid, like people get over it and get on the stage, because when you get on that stage, other women in the audience are going to see you and be like, if she can do it, I can do it. Right. So do it for other people because we need representation. That said, how can you get started? It's actually much easier and there can't even be a better time because guess what? The number one fear that people have in public speaking is getting in front of us on, like, on a stage in front of a group and like, being a disaster. I have two things to tell you. I have bombed as recently as six months ago. It happens. 
But the second thing is, this is the best time. When you're online, you don't see people. You can actually create your content as videos. Many conferences will take them, and they will do it. How to get started? Very, very simple advice. This works for me. It will work for you. The easiest way to start is find a talk somebody else gave and do a recap for your meetup. It'll take away the three biggest fears that you have. One, that you don't know how to do content. Hey, guess what? They did the slides. Literally screenshot them, put it in a PowerPoint or a Google Slides, and off you go. Two, you don't know flow. You had the flow. They gave it to you. You're going to learn to summarize. Three, I'm not adding value to this conversation. Not true. If you go to any the, the people who give the talks, they're not going to be able to get to every tiny meetup. The biggest example is like a Microsoft build or a Google I.O., right? Yep. All the talks out there, there's community that wants to have like the summary of, hey, what were the three things that that talk was about? Do the lightning talks. And guess what? Meetup organizers worldwide, they want speakers. They will love speakers. Do a five-minute lightning talk. Take someone else's talk. Do the slides. That's one. Second is um, I'm very much into sketchnoting and visual storytelling these days. And I want you to all look at it. And the reason I say this. Well, so what is what is sketchnoting? Because some people might not know what that is. So real okay. briefly, what, what is briefly what is sketchnoting? Absolutely. So sketchnoting is visual, taking notes visually. So meaning that rather than write or like type lots of words, you try to kind of use icons and images with text, very little bit of text, but like navigational cues, et cetera. You can distill down a talk to a sheet of paper, right? But more importantly, I want to tell you why it's important. It turns out that when you look, go go just Google how people learn. People learn in different ways. There's auditory learning, which is you listening to a lecture. This is literally how schools run. This is like all the lectures. You think it's successful. It's really not. The second is kinesthetic. People learning by doing things. This is all the tutorials in the world, right? Like you give me a tutorial, I'll walk through it, I'll have learned something. But visual learning is people learn by looking at something. I am a visual learner. And here is the stat you need to know. 65% of the population are visual learners. It doesn't mean they're only visual. It means that they have a strong visual learning component, which makes it easier for them to absorb knowledge from a, an image than they would from a, an audio tape or right. giant piles of text. And and some of these sketch notes are really beautiful. Um, Chuki is, does some, did, you know, used to do some amazing ones. I don't know if she still does, but she's done some amazing pieces of work um, sketch noting. So... Um, yeah. So the, anyway, so that's sketchnoting. So yeah, right. So so getting back to getting back to um, the speaking um, a bit there. Yeah. So I actually have a talk, and I'll I'll send you the link to. But how sketchnoting can help you become a better public speaker? Oh, cool. Uh, because really, it's if you've ever done mind mapping and like writing down the flow, if you want to start public speaking, it's really really simple. I kind of walk through a very trivial way for you to work it out. And once you start looking at the math becomes very easy. Most talks are 20 minutes. It'll take you one minute per slide. That means you need 20 slides. So take 20 pieces of paper, like take 20 index cards and stick them on a wall. That's all your talk. You, all you need to do is fill 20 index cards. So fill the first card with the title and fill the last card with the summary. Now you only have 18. The first of the those will be you introducing yourself. Now you only have 17. Break it up into three. It's always a rule of three because people can only keep three thoughts in their head at a time. So take it into three things. What is it? How do I get started? And why should I use it, right? Take those three things, break your remaining cards into three piles. So now you only have five cards per pile. You have to say five things about what it is. You have to say five things about how to do it. 
write it down and then don't make slides stick it on a wall and go to sleep in fact stick it on your dressing room table the brain the human brain is an incredible thing it absorbs the information and it starts actually working through it right like while you're sleeping do this 2 3 days or even a week before and it starts figuring out stories around it the most important thing about public speaking is having flow and so this starts thinking like i can't get these two cards to fit i need something else so then move the index stick an index and build the bridge and just slowly move them around until you have what you want and that's your talk literally then copy that into slides and the visual sketch noting thing for me is once you've written your notes down take every index card reduce it to one image and not more than two lines of text yeah and that's your story and and i want to point out to folks who are or who who have just heard what nitya has to say and are like nah, i'm still not interested i still don't think i could do it i just want to point out nobody goes to a meetup with tomatoes to throw at the speaker when they don't like what they had to say right everybody gets applause when they're done i mean more, I, yeah i more mean um we've been to meetups before and there have been maybe terrible talks but everybody is still shown love right i mean it's and and you're going to give a bad talk it, it's it could it, it's it could, there's a good chance you could give a bad talk um but you you and and when i say a bad talk what i mean is you'll feel like you made a mistake you forgot something you maybe didn't you your you, your speaker notes maybe got mixed up something happened where you didn't feel as confident as you would have been it's going to happen and and let those little failures kind of you know occur and that way when you go back you learn from it it's again we talk about this kind of beginner versus expertise you're not going to be an expert public speaker off the bat i mean if you are that's fantastic but the likelihood of that happening or it's probably not as 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 high as you'd like so get in it get into it get it going and i'd say right now here's the best part um nitya mentioned that meetup organizers are desperate for people to give a talk because if they don't have people to give a talk they have to give a talk so they've got the organizing to do they've got their jobs to do they've got other things to do and now they've got to create a talk so if you go up to one of these people and they're out there and you say hey I would like to give a talk and I would like to give a talk for 15 minutes. They will probably hug you if they could. I mean because it's 15 minutes of content they do not have to provide. So, and then again, like, you know, you're going to get a you're going to get an applause when you finish and it's going to be a real high that you'll probably get addicted to. So, and it's a good high. It's not a bad high. It's, it's a, a very high. good high. And I'll add two things. There's there's always going to be like, you know, hecklers and all that stuff sometimes. but i want people to keep two things in mind in my opinion and i have bombed many times right like i've gone on stage and i will feel terrible yeah. walk out and people will come and say that was an amazing talk yes. yeah. all the time we are always harsher on ourselves than we than others and people recognize effort right so the first thing you want to recognize is that audience is on your side they came there and they're sitting there because they expect that they're going to learn something from you yeah. and they're never disappointed and if that doesn't work and this is for everyone out there who's had people heckle them or say stuff if someone does you have a very simple response for them which is this there was a cfp if you can do this better than me you should have submitted it i submitted it i got accepted i well, deserve to be here and it's although i want to i want to point out like in when in terms of heckling it doesn't i I've, i've i've been around um meetups for a while i've never seen a heckler 
not meet up. Meetups are different because we have a code of conduct. Like I will tell you as an organizer to have throw, I will, I will literally like throw people out for like not. But I've never, but I just want to point out like, so I've been in, I've been involved with stuff, but I have not seen someone heckle. I maybe at a conference, um, there could be some jerks, but, but I, but I'll tell you this much when, if that happens, I imagine most people around will probably try to shut that person up. So yeah, I wouldn't I don't, don't don't go into it thinking that that's a a possibility because it's it's that's a very slim possibility. And the other the other the the one other bit I want to point out is that I I spoke to Anise Davis, um, and Anise has gone around the world giving talks. Um, she's the director of uh, engineering over at um, Meetup. Meetup. And she has, she, she was telling me about the story where she was giving a talk in Italy and she couldn't see the audience. And so there was no visual cues to kind of see if the audience was absorbing and really getting her talk. And so she gave this talk and she thought she was bombing the whole time. I mean, if you can imagine going overseas, going to, going to Italy and, and I think it was Italy, it was Italy or Spain, either way, you're going overseas, you're giving a talk. And then you're, you think you're bombing. I mean, that's, I mean, oh my God. I mean, you're traveling overseas, you give a talk and you, you don't, you don't think you're doing a good job. And anyway, so she gets off the stage and people are coming up to her left and right throughout, throughout the day. Like, oh my God, your talk was amazing. Thank you so much. And so, uh, you know, it, 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 that's just the culture of where it was, you know, where the, the talk was that they, they weren't going to applaud or kind of, you know, do things throughout the, the, um, the talk. So you know, again, yeah. there's so uh, it's, it's just a, it's just a really kind of odd thing that, um, but you just, just get out there and do it because you'll have so much fun doing it. You'll make a lot of friends while you're doing it. And, and the other thing is this, it's the con the writing stuff down on your own, putting, committing things to slides. You're going to learn a lot because you're, you're going to double check things. You're going to make sure that what you're writing is, is, Hey, that's right. Cause I don't want to have someone challenge me. So you know what? I'll, I'll take the extra 10 seconds, look it up, make sure that that's right. Put it on my slide. Now I'm good to go. And you're, you're going to learn so much more doing that, preparing your slides than you, you would have, if you just kind of said, read a blog post about it and said, oh, that was great. So teaching is the best way to learn, I think. Absolutely, but I will reinforce something because women in tech have a slightly different experience at times. Like okay. you'll see this in, uh, you can say something online and you'll get people kind of jumping on you to tell, like to basically explain it to you. Like, oh, you didn't quite understand that, right? So I don't mean heckling that's those such people. such a, oh my right? God, okay. Right? See, so I and I apologize because that's me being a guy. I don't deal with that or honestly, I don't really I don't even recognize it as such. But I don't give a shit. You know, right. that's the other thing. You have the privilege to not give a shit. Yes, I do. The, the point of it is that there are microaggressions. When I speak, I always like, I'm always thinking like this global diversity CFP day, right? I'm speaking to the people because of, hey, I understand your fears. I've been there. And my thing when I say is, I don't want you to go in there thinking everyone is good. No, it's not. That's not it. What I need you to go in there is knowing you are good. Like, yes, yes, yes. The second thing is when I say, hey, heckling, I'm not really talking about people saying, oh, you suck. No, that's not what I mean. I'm talking about the person who's going to get up and get into a long conversation on something that had nothing to do with what uh, you were talking about because they see it as a place for them to shine, right? Yeah. And that's when you need to ask yourself or you need to tell them, hey, that's a great topic, but you should have submitted to the CFP. I have the stage because this is what I have to say. 
And more importantly, I think, and this is what I will, this is my biggest, I've spoken at research conferences. I've spoken at developer conferences. They're different beasts. The biggest thing you want to remember is nobody. Nobody's going to remember everything you, you said. Nobody. People come into a conference, they're going to sit for like 10 things and everyone is mentally drained. What you want to do is inspire them and say, here are three things you take away so that they're like, I need to come back and watch the videotape version of this talk, follow the resources and learn. If you've done that, you've done your job. If instead you're like, hey, I'm going to show you what a great coder I am, going to nuances of every single thing, that could be one style of talk and that's totally okay for you not to be the person to do it. But the reality is that people don't learn in the 40 minutes in a conversation. They really absorb what they need to say, that looks interesting. I want to come back and act on it when I'm by myself. I'm here in the conference to soak up stuff. And uh, last, I'll leave it with this. This is a time to actually rethink this whole model, right? All the conferences that I've been, and I've been doing a lot more, like as a program manager, that is the, the other side. Is like I end up being on the conference side and like seeing other people. Most of the virtual events have pre-taped talks, right? You're, you have all the time in the world to finesse your thing, put it out there, and then just sit there and listen to the chat and engage. And if people say, you need to fix this, you can retool your video. But the most beautiful thing about it is you need to start thinking not of conference speaking. You need to think of yourself as a content author. That's who you are as a public speaker. You're no longer a conference speaker. You're a person who's building a brand by providing content that is repurposable. So you don't have, that's the last, you don't have to make a talk for each conference. You want to do one really great talk and you want to give it at 10 conferences. Build, said. Yeah, build your brand around, this is what I really, really know. And that'll work. Yep. Beautifully said. Um, and uh, okay. So I know we're running longer on time, but. <laughs> we're but this down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I want to nerd out with you too, because when you said your, your whole life has been, you know, mobile development, I want to nerd out because I, you know, that's kind of where I got started in mobile and, but anyway, we'll get, we'll get back to that later, maybe offline. Okay. I ask everybody these questions, they're retrospective questions. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's really to give folks in the industry, um, some of your perspective and some of your advice. Okay. All right, here we go. So what are some of the challenges that you're seeing younger developers struggle with? And do you have a, an, you have advice or a philosophy that you encourage developers to follow? And I think we kind of talked about a lot of this um, in, in the rest, in the earlier part of the show, but um, do you have any advice for younger developers um, that are, that, or, and, and what do you see them struggling with? Um, okay. So I'm going to look at almost like advice to my younger self, right? In that sense, because I look back and be like, Hey, I wish I had known this. So the first and foremost thing is remember you're on a journey, right? know what your goal is, have a very clear mission statement for what you're doing and be very clear to yourself on how you're progressing. The biggest challenge you're going to face is your own imposter syndrome, right? That's the biggest challenge because, um, and this is kind of relating to my fact that I want us to start reclaiming words with power, like beginner, like junior, like reclaim them as saying, hey, this is cool. Um, Scott Hanselman did a wonderful talk yesterday where he talked about junior developers, right? Junior developers are actually the pioneers for beta testing things. They're the people who are coming in who need to be onboarded. And if your documentation sucks, they're the people who are going to find it out because they're literally your users. So 
the the thing I would tell you is this: don't listen to anybody else. You need to ask yourself what you want to learn. Make it about learning, 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 learning. Every single thing you learn is going to come back tomorrow to help you somewhere else. So when you're, and I'm not going to say junior, senior, beginner, none of that stuff. I will talk about journeys. I will consider myself a junior. Um, I don't know, maybe scientist. I don't know, right? Or I'm a beginner. I could even call myself a beginner on Android now because I haven't done Android for like a year, right? So I could call myself whatever, like, I don't care. But I have incredible confidence, right? That my knowledge is supreme. Like, you can come and tell me, and it's not going to hurt me for you to say, oh, my God, I'm so much better than you because I'll be like, I have 10 things I do every day that you don't even know. Right. So what you need to do when you're quote, unquote, junior is take the labels away, write a mission statement, write a mission statement, one line that says this year, this is who I am, this is what I want to learn, and this is what I will measure my success by. And it goes back to something I talk about in self-care, and I someday will write an essay on it, which is the difference between identity and roles. Your identity who is who you think you are. You own that. Your role is what other people think you are. When they call you a junior developer, that's who they think you are. They're putting you in a box with that title. You, If you call yourself a junior developer, that's who you think you are. Don't. Call yourself a developer. And then the second thing is find uh, people that you admire who are comfortable in their own space and reach out for, I, I won't say mentorship, I hate that term, but reach out to do things like pair programming. What you want to do, though, most importantly, most, most importantly, is write. The first skill I want you to learn every day is write one thing you learned and blog about it. I don't do it, so don't do as I uh, do, do as I say. The reason I say this is I'm encouraging my kid. You don't even know. He has like a, I made even his science projects, I make him write something up. And the reason is this. If you write down what you did, come back in a week, you will be shocked at how much you achieved that you did not recognize at the time. Because hindsight is 20, 20. You'll be like, oh my God, I did that. I look at my the things I write all the time and I'm like, I wrote that? I did that? Well, Jesus. But then one of the one of the good things about coming back to that is that when you come back to it, you've got that um, experience written down. Yes. So it's kind of like it, it it kicks up that expertise right away because you're like, oh, that's right. I did it that way. And that's okay, great. So exactly what Nitya is saying, you don't have to publish the blog, but write it, you know? But I do encourage you to publish it anyway because yeah. one of the cool things is that when you uh, solve a problem, you write a blog article on it and then you post it. And then six months later, you have the same problem and you get on Google and you search for it. And one of the top results that comes up is your article. Mm -hmm. That's a really cool feeling to say like, oh, I had a question and Google's telling me my answer is me. Yeah. So that's a pretty neat thing. So anyway. I'll also throw out that uh, I love Dev2 as a community. So dev.to and the practical dev, uh, they, we just came off Codeland, right? And Look for the hashtag code newbies if you're really new to code on Twitter. But what I mean is that if you want a safe place to blog, try there because they really okay. do have moderators. They have like, they'll make sure there's no harassment. It's a very safe space. And more importantly, the community there really values people sharing authentic experiences. And what you will find is when you share your whatever, I just learned how to write a script today. 
10 people will pile on the comments saying, oh my God, this is cool. I just tried it out. And this was because there are the, the biggest revelation about tech is we, we all lack a sense of belonging. Imposter syndrome comes from the fact that you think you're the only person like this and everyone else around you is an expert because we all kind of go out there beating our chests and showing our best selves. Yeah. Here's the reality. Your Instagram, Twitter self is not the real person. All of us have a ton of mess, like issues in our heads. Yeah. We're all working through imperfections. But when you share something, you're doing two things. You're building a brand for yourself to what, Mike, what you were saying. If I publish on Java every day, before you know it, I'll be seen as a Java expert, though I never call myself that. It's because people judge you by what they see. And then the second thing is you yourself will start finding people come and tell you, hey, I really like that. And I think one of the best things that community for me has been about is finding that sense of belonging. Finding people who are like, I look at it, I'm harsher on myself and be like, that was that sucked, this is horrible. And there's someone who'll come and say, that helped me. And I'm yeah. like, wow, that is amazing, yes. Okay, so you answered that question beautifully. But you know what? You also answered my second question, which was going to be, what advice would you give your younger self? So <laughs> I'm going to flip it on you, mm -hmm. okay? What advice do you think your older self would give you today? So in other words, what advice would your older self come back in time and give you now? So instead of you giving your younger self, what would your older self give you? I think that's actually very simple. Um, oh, okay. yeah, because I've this past year, six months, I've done a lot of thinking. Um, it would be very simple, which is don't do things for peer approval. Do not make decisions based on the fact that you're doing it to get other people to like you or because other people will approve. Because at the end of the day, if you didn't do it because you approved of it yourself, it'll bother you no end. So my advice and i'm not following it i'm like trying really hard is and the mission statement was actually a really big step in that direction is there are two things that are very important in life one is the relationships you build and the other is the time you have none of us know how much time we have so my very advice true. yeah is do the things that you will be proud of know why you did them and build community relationships, build relationships, build relationships. If everything crashes and burns, but you helped one person do one thing, that time was worthwhile. So yeah. yeah. And then sometimes you could build relationships and then bother some of those people and they can come on your podcast. That's true. <laughs> that is very true. You discover the most amazing things when you talk to people and share failures. That's my, yeah. that was my, I think that's one thing that I'm learning now. I'm more on, on Twitter. I'm more, happy to like say things that like I wouldn't say You're very you keep it very real on Twitter and that's that's one of the reasons I tell people like you should definitely follow you because you, your your Twitter account is just so real it's it's not you, you don't get you don't get the polish and the and that people will put on something to establish this persona and then by doing so you've established this persona almost of of being this very real person who is just like look yeah I screwed up uh, or, or I'm doing this here today, and this is this is pretty awesome. Um, but like you know, it's it's you're just a very good follow on Twitter. So I'll, uh, and I, I, I'll let people follow you. I'll, I'm going to tell them about your. I'll re, I'll re, um, I'll repeat your your Twitter handle after the show, and and that way people can get on it. But um, but yeah, okay. So yeah, 
Well, that's a that's a that's a great answer. Though. I have a two word uh, model for myself this year, which is be fearless. That's the okay. only thing I wanted to say is that we are all letting our fears. Like right now, this year, twenty twenty is a dumpster fire. <laughs> I'm just saying, there's a lot of things wow. that we're afraid of that we have no control over, and try not to let fear take over your life. Yeah. Speaking of fear in 2020, I think they found like this giant hole in the Gulf of Mexico that they want to try to explore. Like, don't, don't leave it, leave it alone. Leave it alone. Wait till next year and then try next year. Um, okay. So moving on. Um, what's, what's one thing that you do that totally breaks the mold on being of the, you know, fitting that programming nerd prototype, uh, that you do that you're willing to share. Um, is it golfing, bike riding, running, skydiving? Are you a huge Downton Abbey fan? Um, what What is something that you that you are interested in that is not coding related that you are interested in sharing? Oh, awesome! So um, you already know sketch it's not as coding, but I'll tell you two things. I can tell you one embarrassing thing, and one okay. Thing. So sure. if you follow me on Twitter, you know I cook. Um, I'm Indian by origin. Um, I, and I find cooking very, very therapeutic, very therapeutic. Um, and it's also a very creative endeavor. And the thing is, I think that strangely enough, I find all of them are connected with cooking. It's recipes. Your mind gets into this mold of like, Oh, okay, this and this and this. And there is that whole, like for centuries, cooking is the essence of community building. It is how we gather around a table and talk. And so for me, I've had like meetings at work where everyone is there and I'll be like, hey, this is my time zone. I literally will cook while I talk to you and it's totally okay. Um, and that's one of the things that comes with the privilege of being around this long that I no longer like try to pretend to be something. I'm like, hey, I, this is my dinner time. I'm going to do it. So cooking, if you follow me, you know, I love recipes. You'll find me ta- hashtagging Twitter sized ones because I'm trying to make sure my kid has something when I'm not around that he can go cook them too. But I think that cooking and culture is a big deal for me. Embarrassing side, uh, I'm a huge fan of dime novels. Like, so let me put it this way. Um, I read, I have a very eclectic reading style. Right now I'm reading a lot of anti-racism books because I really, really want to educate myself. So when I go walking, I have podcasts I listen to because I really want to absorb it. Those are the books I want to remember and think about. Like that's, that's podcasting. And then I have a checkout of like, God knows, I'll read... Um, I've read young adult novels. I'll read vampire novels. I'll read Victorian romances. God with that. I will read anything. And the reason for that is it's sheer escapism. And yeah. in a strange way, I love mythology too, because it's, 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 it's effectively, you need a sense of humor about your life. And you kind of, it's, it's just so ridiculous. But at the same time, I have become fascinated with character building. I swear to God, I keep telling folks in the family too, it's like, hey, it takes 10 years to build a career. It really does. It takes 10 years to build a career, no matter what, whatever you want to do. And I'm like, if I want to do something different, non-tech in 10 years, I want to write folk stories. I want to write stories. I want to build characters. If you look at my essays, if you look at the way I think, I really like to like make connections, have like smart, sarcastic remarks, like characters that are really like, you know, in your face. And I think we all need these. We all need worlds that we can escape into where we are not who we are in real life. And the further from it it is, the better. Especially this year. 
oh god this year i feel like i'm living in a novel it's like well we are yeah. we're all living in the reality show but yeah um that's beautiful that's- and i'd lo- i tell you what i'd love would love to read one of your books i think that would be phenomenal so I, when you write let me know and i will be one of the first people in line yeah, I actually had this. Uh, do you know, for example, that what was the remake? Clueless. You remember the movie with Alicia Silverstone? Yeah, that was made off of something else. Emma, Jane Austen, yeah. Jane Austen's Emma, right? And I think that's one of the things uh, that's been in the back of my mind is um, taking traditional stories, putting them into contemporary context and erasing. So have you ever heard of this um, expression, symbiotic annihilation? No. It's an, you should look it up. I, ever since I saw it, it's like stuck in my mind. So symbiotic annihilation says representation is missing in stories because, and that's one of the reasons why we have so much bias. So if you go look back, why are all the superheroes men? We're not seeing enough women superheroes and therefore people have gotten into the stereotypes that people are a certain way. And now like growing up, I grew up in Africa. I grew up in India. I like read a lot of books. I used to think they were amazing. I go back now with my current set of like, knowledge about context and all of the things happening in the world. And I'm like, oh my God, this is so non-representative. Is this what I want my son to read, right? And so I've begun to think about, and it holds for Indian mythology too. Indian mythology is amazing, but if you look into it, all the heroes are men. But if you really look under the covers, women are powerful entities, right? So yeah, one of my things is I, I really want to go and rethink those stories and apply them in a way that kind of puts the spotlight that a lot of people doing already. It's not just me puts the spotlight on the stories and the journeys and the world building from the perspective of the marginalized in those stories, not the heroes that we're all familiar with, but the little characters. And it's amazing if you do that. I, like I said, write the book. I am, I am down for reading it. So, okay. Um, one thing we want to close out the show with, we want the podcast to be about positivity. So Mm -hmm. it means folks, uh, you know, in order to love the community, um, you need to love yourself first. Uh, so tell us about one or some of your accomplishments that you're most uh, proud of. Um, most proud of. In other words, what's the one thing that when you're facing a tough situation that you can go back into that well of awesome accomplishments and pull out and say, Hey, I did this. I, I can totally do this other thing that I'm struggling with right now. So I'll, I'll, I'll split that into two sides. To me, hands down, I'd, I, if everything went to hell in a handbasket, I wouldn't change a thing. My biggest accomplishment is my son. End of discussion. The reason being, it's not even, I'll even get emotional talking about it, but a lot of women in tech will, will understand what I say. I put off everything. Like I did a PhD. I was like, you know, everything was delayed in my life. I put everything on the shelf for my career. I worked, I worked, I worked. So. To me, like the fact he's there is significant, right? Really, and more so because he's not at all like either of us. I see in him, this is like, this is amazing. This is a, this is like, you're literally, the world building and storytelling is happening in front of my eyes. So to me, that's my biggest accomplishment. I really don't care about anything else, right? Like, so everyone has their superhero stories. I've had many, I've like pulled myself out of multiple like crash and burn situations, burnouts, pulled myself. None of them will compare to that moment when, hey, holy cow, I know how hard it is. I know how many people were not able to have this that I have, and it's important. So 
that to me was like accomplishment. But I will actually tell you a different story to tell you why this is important, right? Okay. The most, if you have you ever read Dan Ariely, one of my favorite authors, he, he's a behavioral economist and he writes a lot of stories analyzing behaviors. He'll talk about that one of the most powerful motivating emotions is regret. Regret drives you more than pretty much anything. Money is there, but regret is powerful. So I'll tell you a story of like my first job out of college with this was with Infosys. Infosys, which is now a multi-billion dollar company. I was like employee 52. I still remember that I have a, a, a piece of paper and a watch and like, hey, you did a great job. And I remember this because I was fresh out of school, really young. Um, and I was employee 52 and they gave me shares and all I had to stay was two years. And my mom was like, at the time, nobody knew what they were gonna be. I was, I remember we were in a garage, like literally would have tea in the basement, right? Um, and so I stayed for a year learn i worked with as 400 and case tools not kidding and i stayed because um my sister was finishing something up my mom said okay now you got to go for advanced studies studying matters so i quit to come here for my phd all my friends there like now they're like billionaires and philanthropists right because like so i think back and this is what i mean by the essence of regret i anytime i think to myself i could be this person i could have I, i'm like i can look back and be like i could have been a billionaire like if money is the measure of success, regret is why didn't I stay just one more year, right? Yeah. And nowadays I don't anymore because this is why my son is my biggest achievement. Because every time you feel the need to rethink your life and you regret, you have fear, you have anything, look back and find a moment in your life that is your anchor and tell yourself, would you do, and it has to be a really joyous thing, which you're like, no matter what happened in my life, that moment will never, I will never sacrifice it if that will not happen. Then you realize all our paths led there. So to me, yeah. he's my achievement because it's like, you can do anything, say anything. It's like, I already won, man. <laughs> you know, beautiful. I'll never go back and change my life. Never. Everything we do, we're just moving towards something, but I already won. That's beautiful. All right. I mean, that's, that's pretty much it. Um, Nitya, thank you so much for hanging out today. Did you have some fun? I did. Thank you so much. I think I took up more than your time, but um, no, I. This was a great. Uh, listen, um, we are gonna. You're gonna be one of the podcasts that we launch with, and this is gonna be uh, a fantastic. Um, you know, I think th this is gonna be the one that we we cap the the launch with. So we'll do the five, and then this will be the fifth episode because I think it's so great. Oh my uh, god! Thank you, to you so much. Um, Appreciate it. So we'll, so we'll end the show, um, but um, for folks interested out there that are interested in hearing more from Nitya's um, just musings, uh, you can find her on Twitter over at, at Nitya, that's at N-I-T-Y-A. Um, thanks again, Nitya, for hanging out and for, for all of you guys for listening. Um, next week, we'll be back again with another amazing person uh, that just happens to write code for a living. Until then, everybody, be well.